Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. We're very pleased to be joined today again by uh, uh, someone we admire very much in the U.S. Congress, uh, Representative Eric Swalwell. You may remember him for for his presidential campaign. He's been a very active, outspoken uh, member of Congress uh, since he got there. Uh, how are you doing today, Congressman? I'm good. We're back in D.C. We're starting up what's going to be a busy couple of weeks, hopefully going to get this infrastructure bill passed. So uh, fired up to be back in D.C. Well, well, perhaps we'll get to the infrastructure bill. Uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of ground to cover. I'd like to start today, though, um, because uh, uh, with a focus on on the policing issues that have been really front and center in the news, this uh, Dante Wright story, which I saw you tweeted about this morning, is 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 absolutely heartbreaking. Um, but it's also so consistent with so many other stories that at a certain point you have to say this is a pattern, and we need to come up with a systematic solution nationwide to dealing with this pattern. I know, I, I, I believe, I'm, I'm just recalling this, but I, I, th- I think, was it your dad was a, a police officer? My dad, uh, two brothers, uh, currently you know, walk the beat. And I, I agree, uh, we have seen, uh, I mean, before I was even alive, but it, it certainly has persisted and it feels like it's escalating individual and institutional uh, instances of abuse uh, and racism. And, uh, you know, Mr. Wright should be alive today. You know, I, I, just like you, I've watched that video. I, I don't understand how an officer whose firearm is supposed to be on their strong side uh, could deploy their taser, which is on their weak side, which is much lighter. And I would just also wonder how a veteran could do this. And David, it'll be interesting, and I'm sure an investigation will yield this, but I'd, I'd like to know if this officer has deployed her taser in the past uh, and has gotten it right, you know, when subduing uh, white uh, suspects. Uh, it just, again, this, to me, the worst thing you can call it, I think, is an accident uh, that that just, you know, it, it, may be, it may be a lot of things, but it's, it's not an accident. And certainly no person that does that, you know, should remain on the force. And, and it's, it's just frustrating, I'm sure, for every parent uh, of a black, uh, you know, son or daughter in America today. Well, and, and you know, that gets to, you know, kind of a core issue here, which is, you know, we, we, we see this kind of thing happening. We have the Derek Chauvin trial going on right now. We see it happen on, on such a regular basis. Um, and the response typically is perhaps it's a trial. Sometimes it's media discussions about this thing, but it falls into the general category of thoughts and prayers. We don't say, 
you know, should police carry arms or should they not carry arms as they do in some other countries or, you know, half the jobs or 80% of the jobs policemen are called upon to do aren't actually fighting crime. They're dealing with homeless or dealing with mentally ill people or dealing with domestic violence, which perhaps involves different training and perhaps we should approach it a different way. We don't seem to be getting our arms around that. Now, President Biden has talked about investigating and coming up with broader solutions. Do you have any sense that that's something that's on the agenda? I do. And I think the best thing we can do immediately is to have the Senate pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which makes a number of sweeping reforms from getting rid of qualified immunity for police officers, you know, requiring a national registration of any bad cops. Uh, you know, getting rid of the and banning the chokehold, uh, you know, it, it won't solve every instance of injustice, uh, but it will do a heck of a lot better than what we're seeing right now. But I also think we have, if the officer's defense is going to believe that he or she believed that their life was at risk because of uh, the circumstances regarding the stop, we have to think about then um, that we have too many guns in America. And the proliferation of firearms in America uh, has led uh, to this. And, and I'm not saying that that is a justified reason uh, to use force, uh, but if that is one of the factors that officers are considering, I think we are ignoring uh, that we have allowed too many dangerous people to obtain dangerous weapons. And uh, the result of that is that you see that as a justification for so many police shootings. And, and so uh, it, it's just this sort of, um, feedback loop that we're in where we have more guns and then you have more shootings of innocent black people because the officers argue, well, I thought he or she may be armed. Of course, you're in the House of Representatives and 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 the, the Senate is a whole different world. But uh, with a slim Democratic majority, if we didn't have the filibuster, we'd have gun reform. We'd have that bill passed. Um, what's your view on the filibuster? Break it to pass background checks if you can't get 60 votes. Break it to pass uh, voting rights uh, if you can't get 60 votes. Break it to pass legislation that an overwhelming majority of Americans want that a minority in the Senate is blocking. Yeah, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. You, you get to something there, which I think is kind of interesting. When Biden came into office, he talked about bipartisanship. It became apparent very quickly that that wasn't going to happen on the Hill but that it was possible in the country and that there are a whole host of issues, whether it's sensible gun reforms or, you know, stewardship of the environment or, uh, uh, you know, defending democracy or having a fair tax law where, where the, you know, 70, 80% of Americans support these things. And it, and it looks like the democratic party has, you know, led by the president sort of taken upon itself to sort of, bypass the beltway, go out, talk to people on Main Street. And that seems very promising to me, you know, unless, you know, if we get these kind of log jams as a result of the, uh, of the filibuster. Do you think there's a kind of a sea change going on? Do you think Republicans are worried that, you know, things like the American uh, Rescue Plan were so broadly embraced, the, 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 the support now for the American Jobs Plan seems to be at a similar level. Are they worried that a government that actually does good stuff for the people might be hard to compete with? Yes. And, and what they're doing, David, is they're doubling down now 
recognizing that uh, they bet wrong on the American Rescue Plan. Now they're, they're doubling down on you know, the cancel culture uh, case that they're making or the exaggeration uh, of the border crisis where they just want to you know, exaggerate the problem and, and offer no solutions for people that desperately uh, need help. And, and that's what they're going to have to run on in 2022 if the economy continues to hum along as Goldman Sachs predicts, 8% growth by the end of the year, uh, under 4% unemployment uh, by the start of next year, every American vaccinated, schools open, people in churches, synagogues, mosques, and main streets uh, opened as well. So uh, they don't have an interest in governing, uh, they just have an interest uh, in grievances. Uh, and I do think though that Joe Biden should keep his promise to try and work with Republicans where he can, but recognize that Republicans in Washington probably don't reflect Republicans across America who do support his agenda so far. Yeah, well, Republicans in Washington seem to be a special breed of crazy. You know, <laughs> forgive my saying so, but, you know, you've been on the receiving end of this um, because, you know, there was that whole nonsense that they spun up um, where you did everything the right way in, in, in regards to this uh, sort of interaction with Chinese person. But 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 they, you know, they they still want to pretend that the facts are completely irrelevant there. And they spent a whole day, David. Uh, they they had a message on the border crisis a couple of weeks ago. Um, they and again they were exaggerating the crisis. They had no interest in solving the crisis, uh, but to just show the lack of discipline that Kevin McCarthy has. Um, after three days of trying to break through with the border crisis, uh, they spent a whole day trying to remove me from a committee. It didn't work. Uh, many of their own members didn't even vote for it, uh, and. Uh, then they moved on to, you know, Dr. Seuss or, you know, whatever the next, uh, you know, whack-a-mole uh, issue of the day that they found. So I just don't see them as a party of principles anymore. I see them as a party of grievances and they're not a party that has a leader. They're a party that, you know, is a cult that is following uh, Donald Trump. And to me, I'm flattered that, you know, yesterday the president would uh, issue a statement uh, going after me. It just shows a complete lack of focus as to what matters to most people. And um, you know we'll we'll take it because we're here to get things done, and that's what we're doing. And boy, uh, boring has never uh, been so much fun. I think in America. You mean the ex-president, don't you? Yes, that's right. That former guy. Yeah, the former, the the former guy. Let's. I, I was having a flashback there. It was a little disturbing. But you know, meanwhile, Matt Gates. You know, we've got this scandal unfolding. Um, it seems to be real. It seems to be getting bigger every day and they don't seem to be willing to do anything about it. No, no, they're, they're not interested in, in policing uh, their own. And, and again, it, it's a party that has lost its core. Uh, you know, it, they're not interested in, you know, policing the misconduct of people in their own caucus. Uh, they're mostly interested in, in pandering to the grievances uh, of, uh, you know, a small minority of Americans and, I just don't think it's working. I get that historically a president in his first term usually sees a loss in the midterms, but this to me just feels so much different uh, because of the bold agenda the Biden administration is leaning into, a leader in Speaker Pelosi who's getting it done. And it's just a matter of, you know, what is uh, the capacity of the Senate uh, to recognize that a minority should not block an overwhelming majority of Americans from benefiting from these Biden policies. 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think Joe Biden has this kind of superpower that he just doesn't hear Twitter politics. You know, he doesn't he doesn't get sucked into that. He's saying, I've got a job to do. And and Nancy Pelosi has also been extremely good about that. Chuck Schumer, as he's taken over this new role, has been good about that. Meanwhile, the Republicans seem to be, you know, unabashed and trying to undermine democracy with, you know, scores and scores of suits across, or, or efforts across the country to uh, uh, suppress votes. And now you've got corporations saying, no, we're not going to go along with this. In Georgia, uh, yesterday, you, you had uh, uh, Ford and GM saying, watch your step, Michigan. This is not what we're about here. That seems to support your thesis that the corporate community not long, you know, long seen as a kind of a, a support for the GOP is saying, no, no, destroying democracy is a bridge too far. And Republicans, I, I believe the leadership, at least, they're, they're isolating themselves uh, from most of America. And when you start to lose, you know, corporate America, who has always been, I, I think, you know, on the side of the Republican Party, you have to really wonder, you know, what do you believe in? And, and you know, have you abandoned your principles or are you being abandoned? Have you abandoned your own principles uh, when you're being abandoned by, you know, corporate America? And, and to me, that is very powerful. And I think, you know, activists holding corporate America accountable and making sure that they speak out and they have an opinion on this evisceration of voting rights uh, is important. And, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, we need to ask corporations to take public positions on every single public policy issue, but voting rights is something so fundamental to a democracy uh, that if they don't take a position, uh, that is all too telling. And so I am heartened to see so many speaking up and really alienating and isolating uh, the extreme Republican party leadership. Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, there is an apparatus. It, it consists of the extreme Republican party leadership, but also consists to some significant extent to Fox News and OAN and, and a bunch of these other characters. And you've had, you know, Tucker Carlson and some of these guys buying into, you know, replacement theory, out and out racism. And and then, you know, the Murdoch saying, uh, yeah, that's fine. We're okay with that. Um, and corporations are also now being asked, you want to underwrite that. Um, and so we really seem to be at a kind of a turning point, you know, either You've got, on the one hand, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party saying, let's do the business of governing. And on the other hand, you've got the Republican Party, and it looks like their message is, let's blow it all up if we can't be in control. You know what I've learned, uh, David, you know, speaking of like the Tucker Carlson's, I don't know, this isn't even a clash of philosophies. If that was the case, um, I would welcome that because I, I would love to debate Tucker Carlson's philosophy versus Joe Biden's philosophy. But I've gone on Tucker Carlson's show probably more than any other Democrat in the last 10 years, elected Democrat. And I've been in the House for nearly 10 years. And so I've, I've been around the likes of Ted Cruz and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan. And what I have learned is that it is a pro wrestling culture that I would go on Tucker Carlson's show. And before the show, he would have me in his office or we'd be talking on the set and he would be trying to bro out with me and be my friend and tell me how great of a job he thinks I'm doing. And then we'd go into the show and he was a completely different person. Same thing I realized uh, in the first couple of years in Congress, 
you know, Jim Jordan running next to me on the, the treadmill in the house gym is trying to be your buddy. He's asking you how things are going. Ted Cruz told me I did a great job at the Senate impeachment trial during one of the breaks. Matt Gates, same thing, always trying to be your buddy. These guys don't even believe in what they're saying. That, that's what's so sick to me is that it's like pro wrestling. They think when we're in the ring together, I'm going to hit you over the head with a steel chair. But backstage, we're all friends because we're just doing this. It's fake and it's what the fans want. So I, I, I can't even really, frankly, take them seriously because I don't even believe I'm debating somebody who believes what they're actually saying. Yeah, I th and I think you're extremely good at it. In fact, I, you know, I think one of the sort of uh, 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 secret powers of the Democratic Party right now is that there's a kind of rising generation of leaders that I include you in that, um, uh, you know, until very recently used to be in your 30s. Thank you for uh, reminding me of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you have uh, Secretary Buttigieg, Buttigieg and you've got uh, AOC and a whole bunch of younger people who actually are able to handle this kind of media game. The GOP is playing much better than a lot of other people, because, you know, when in the, in the case of each of you, when you go, you get on Fox or you go someplace else, you, you, you know, are confronted by these people. You, 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 you handle it by revealing them for what they're for. I think it's a kind of a beginning of a new kind of dialogue, which uh, we seem to be doing well at, thanks to folks like you. And I, I, well, thank you for that. And, and a lot of my colleagues, I think what they have rec recognized, like Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, is that it's okay to be, you know, a little bit vulnerable, show people who you are, uh, but also not be afraid to punch back. And, um, you know, I think we're punching uh, in the right direction, you know, for the right reasons, uh, for the right people. Uh, and, you know, honestly, um, I, I hope more of my colleagues recognize that, you know, your constituents want to see that you stand for something. And uh, the worst thing I think we could do during these times, because Donald Trump, um, he may no longer be president, but corruption and racism and misogyny, they still exist in many forms in the House and Senate. And in these times we are living in, I describe it as overtime. Uh, the 2020 election was not the end of Trumpism. You know, we essentially with the Biden victory, you know, we hit a, a three-pointer at the buzzer that sent us into overtime. But this is a very fragile time with a 50-50 Senate, a three-vote margin in the House, and a presidency that by six states and about 100,000 votes uh, is able uh, to exist. So we, we very much are in overtime. And what happens in the next two years leading up to the midterms, I think, will define kind of which direction uh, we go in. One of the issues that I think is going to arise in 2020 that, that is hard to predict. You described some that are fairly easy to predict, better economy, you know, better handle on COVID and so forth. And that's got to play to the advantage of the Democrats um, is the issue of accountability for the Trump administration. When do the chickens come home to roost? Um, you, you've uh, launched a, 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 a lawsuit that has to do with uh, what happened on January 6th. Uh, there you know, perhaps let's start there. What, why'd you do that? What's, do you, do you feel that it's going to be civil suits that are going to be the way that we get to some accountability? Well, principally I did it for accountability. I did it because I believe that Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Mo Brooks, you know, are liable for the harms caused uh, that day in stopping us from counting the electoral college votes and then the trauma that 
uh, myself and others uh, experienced. Um, you know, and, and speaking to a number of legal experts believe that, you know, they are meritorious claims. And, and so, you know, we'll proceed. It's going to be a little bit longer than the Senate impeachment trial. Uh, but what I learned in the Senate impeachment trial only reinforced to me how responsible Donald Trump was for uh, perpetuating this big lie and then aiming a mob at the Capitol uh, and then doing nothing once the mob uh, arrived. Um, now, I also think um, I, I would direct you back to about a year ago, I questioned uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray at the Judiciary Committee. And I asked Director Wray whether the DOJ policy of not indicting a sitting, sitting president prevented the FBI from opening up an investigation, meaning even though you could not indict, could you still, if you saw criminal activity, open up an investigation into the president and then once he left office, he or she left office, you could uh, indict. And he didn't really seem to know legally the answer to that, which suggested to me that at, at least when I was questioning him, there were no open investigations of Donald Trump, probably because they believed that you shouldn't open an investigation if you can't close one, if, if you don't believe you can indict him. So for anyone who's wondering, you know, why is it taking so long to hold him accountable? I believed and my impression after that interview was that he would have to be out of office for them to actually initiate investigations. And we know in most white collar investigations, they take 18 months to two years before an indictment. So criminally, I think he's exposed on the federal side, whether it's the Mueller lies, 10 obstruction, uh, obstructive acts with Mueller, whether it's being individual one uh, in the Michael Cohen, uh, Stormy Daniels, uh, you know, conspiracy, uh, whether uh, it's involving, you know, his inauguration uh, and, uh, you know, some of the, the fraud that has already been indicted uh, there. And of course, whether it involves what he was responsible for on January 6th. And then, yes, of course, we all know uh, Manhattan, uh, it seems, is hurtling toward, uh, you know, some sort of conclusion in its investigation. So, uh, you know, the justice system, as a former prosecutor, I can tell you, moves very slow. But I, I, I do believe um, Donald Trump is going to be held accountable and he's going to be living in courtrooms civilly and criminally for the next four years. You, how do you think that'll affect? I mean, we, we only have a minute or two here left, so this will have to be the last question, and we'll just plead with you to come back again sometime soon. But how do you, how do you think that'll affect the politics of 2020? Do you think that will inflame Republicans, or do you think that will remind Republicans that uh, with Trump we hit a nadir in America's political history? Well, I hope we don't think about it that way, and I hope no prosecutor looks at it that way, that we should just sweep it under the rug so that the country can move forward. I, I think the worst thing we could do would be to give him a benefit of the doubt because he is a former president. And I, I kind of, David, look at it as the best thing for history is to hold a corrupt president accountable if he broke the law and let the chips fall where they may with Republican voters who 70% of them still believe today that the election was stolen from Joe Biden. I think their uh, lot is uh, shrinking and contracting, and you're seeing that in voter registration across America. So I, I don't think we should do it to just, you know, appease a political party. I think for the sense of reconciliation in this country, uh, we need to do it to hold them accountable. Well, you're certainly doing your share on that, and uh, we're grateful for it. We hope that we can persuade you to come back. You've become not only one of the most important, um, you know, members of Congress in doing the job of a congressman, but you, you also 
have this kind of analytical gift for the ability to look at what's going on and and provide an, an insight into it. And we're grateful for you for sharing it with us here today. For uh, more about what we've got coming on, folks, go to the DSR Network uh, at the dsrnetwork.com. And hopefully at some point in the future, we will have uh, Representative Swalwell join us again. In the meantime, thanks very much. Uh, of course. Thank you, Giants. David and, and DSR for what you're doing uh, to just make sure that we're all informed. Thank you.